I'm not Jimmy Stewart, and this isn't Bedford Falls, but what you've got here is a podcast, a classic TV and movie podcast, with people talking about some television shows and movies that are pretty terrific. Now, I know you're busy. I'm busy, too. And every once in a while, you just got to make some time here to remember how things used to be. And if you do, I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's a wonderful podcast. I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. These days, when we think of movie epics, films like Avengers Endgame or the newest entry in the Star Wars saga come to mind. But back in 1956, an epic was something very different, and a perfect example of one was Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. That film, starring Charlton Heston as Moses, truly remains phenomenal in terms of scope, which is obvious on the new Blu-ray Digibook being released March 10th by Paramount Home Entertainment. From the size of the crowds and sets to the effects that remain mind-blowing, including the parting of the Red Sea. The important thing to keep in mind is that all of this was accomplished without a single computer anywhere in sight. Looking back at it all on this episode of the podcast, which you should be listening to on Spotify, is Fraser Heston, Charlton's son, who not only talks about the Ten Commandments and his dad's career, but the fact that he himself made his acting debut in the film as Baby Moses and nearly drowned in the process. You know, we've got the Ten Commandments coming out, and is it weird for you that... (laughs) Forget your father for a minute here. Just the fact that that's sort of your big screen debut is as a baby <laughs> in the Ten Commandments. Is yeah, that that's weird funny, all? isn't it? It really is. I know. they keep. I'm sort of like the last one left. Uh, so Paramount, God bless him, hasn't forgotten about me. Um, <laughs> I started my career on the back lot there in the uh, outdoor set uh, at, uh, at Paramount. It's still there. Uh, the big with a big sky backing. It's the first thing you see when you walk in the Paramount lot. Right. I was three months old, and uh, the day I was born, uh, Demille sent my mom a telegram. Congratulations, he's got the part. Love CB. <laughs> uh, That's great. <laughs> I don't know how we knew I was a boy, or if it would have mattered, but uh, probably didn't matter at that uh, point, right? <laughs> so. No, no. And I almost ended my career early there because uh, the basket started to sink. Oh no. And uh, dad had had to run in and rescue me. And the the uh, social worker who was there to look after children, you know, legally mandated social worker, uh, took me away from him and and said, no, no, Mr. Eston, I'm the only one that can hold a baby. And here I am squalling and so sopping wet. And he turned to her and he told me this story later. He said, I with a voice that he used for Pharaoh. Uh, for Moses talking to Pharaoh, he said, "Give me that baby," <laughs> and she and she did. Not surprisingly, not surprising at all, actually. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so tell me, what are your memories of filming? What was? I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Well, I remember you know, it was a sunny day. Yeah. Right. It, what is interesting is it's so ingrained in my DNA as a person, as a son. Even as a father, you know, our entire family is is a part of that film. You can't you can't be a Heston and not, you know, think of that as kind of the the origin story of the Heston family. Although dad had done several movies before that. He did the greatest show on earth for right. TV a couple of years before. 
won the Academy Award uh, for Best Picture. And it w- but it was clearly the role that set him off on, if, pardon the pun, on the epic journey that he, you know, enjoyed as an actor for what the next fifty years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is in many different genres. Not you know he never he didn't get stuck in any one genre. He went from epics to westerns to science fiction to disaster epics to uh, World War Two movies. Um, and he was always able to sort of look back, I think, on his experience with DeMille as his, you know, his sort of origin as an actor, I think. And certainly credited DeMille with a lot of his success. Right. But if you're going to hang a family name on something, it might as well be the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not bad. You know, when you think, uh, I, I've said this before, but when you think epics, you think Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. But when you think Cecil B. DeMille, you think Ten Commandments, right? You just can't help it. It's Absolutely. what pops into your head. They still show it every year at Easter. Uh, Paramount's done an amazing job of restoration, I have to say. I saw it the other day. It's just incredible. It looks like you can step into the film and walk through the desert with Moses. Wow. Uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. So that, you, you, you know, you get back some of the spectacle I think we lost in seeing the film on the small screen. Uh, obviously, if you can see it on a big screen, and they do do revivals of it from time to time, jump on that. But in the meantime, there are generations that maybe haven't seen it at all that can now look at it on, on this 6K Blu-ray restoration and see stuff that you know nobody's seen since the 50s or 60s. Oh, yeah. Hey, look, I mean, the good thing is, you know, I've seen it. I remember watching it on my little black and white TV back when I was you know, in the 60s or whenever it first debuted, <laughs> uh, maybe the 70s. I don't yeah. remember. Uh, now I've got a big 70 inch TV. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure it'll look great <laughs> on it. You know what I mean? Well, and the thing is, you know, it holds up on these big home theater. Yeah. A lot of films, the more you blow them up, the grainier they get. Yeah. Right. There's right. a limit. And and I'm often disappointed by looking at some of the old movies that I I love to watch old movies. I watch them almost every week right. uh, on my giant screen. But but this is one uh, that I think CB would be very pleased to put it another way with using technology to its fullest to both bring the film to people that maybe haven't seen it and to bring it to people that love it and grew up with it uh, as as we all did. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, how did your dad look back at sort of, we were talking before how you said he went from the epics to the Westerns to the science fiction and all that stuff. How did he look back at his career? Did he ever discuss that sort of his feelings of the journey he'd been on? I think he felt he was incredibly lucky. He loved doing what he was doing. He said, I pretend to be people. And that's what, what I often said when people ask me, you know, what's your dad do? Well, he pretends to be someone. Right. Uh, and he called himself a shy kid from backwoods, Michigan, who liked to wear tights and wave swords around. It's uh, <laughs> a good and, way to describe and he, it. And he, he found a way to get paid to do that, basically, to pretend to to inhabit other lives, other worlds, other kingdoms, other characters. Uh, and he, I think, part of his joy is that you know a lot of people say, oh, he must have been a very stern father, kind of an Old Testament figure. No, he wasn't. He was a fun-loving guy. He loved jokes and cartoons and and loved to play tennis. Uh, he built a tennis court at his house on Coldwater Canyon before he built a house. That's and he had funny. an open court every weekend. Yeah, it was great. And he was just, he was a great father 
a wonderful husband to my mother, Lydia. They were married, what, 65 years, I think, which for Hollywood's got to oh be God, some kind of Oh, my God, that's amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a and, set because of Cecil B. DeMille film. Character. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was an amazing character, too, Lydia Clark. Uh, she started out as an actress and later decided that her mission in life was to raise her family and take photographs. And she traveled all over the world and became quite a, a well-known professional photographer, published several books, uh, was really the adventurer. She was the Indiana Jones in the family, <laughs> not my dad. That's interesting. So what, yeah. would, what would you say is like the way you're saying he was a great dad, he was a lot of fun, all that. What would you say is the general misconception about him? Because, I mean, I know he got a lot of press for the you know, the NRA and all that stuff uh, and his conservative views and all that. but what what do you feel is the mis- misconception that people have about who he was? Well, we're making uh, a documentary about his life called Charlton Heston, The Man in the Arena, which is a takeoff on the title of his autobiography, In the Arena. Right. Uh, and one of the, the points that I've often made is that there are two poles in his life that people remember him for. One is holding up the staff and Ten Commandments. Thing, uh, let my people go, right? And the other is holding up the rifle in the NRA saying, from my cold, dead hand. Uh, and those are these two kind of iconic, you know, uh, goalposts in his life that he's known for. But there was so much more in the intervening 50 or 60 years between both those films. Uh, after all, he led the, the arts contingent at the Civil Rights March on Washington for Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, he was president of his union, and he was a union activist for nine or ten years. Um, he was instrumental in founding the American Film Institute and helped to defend uh, the National Council on the Arts uh, budget so that uh, the American Film Institute would be funded uh, when his friend Ronald Reagan wanted to make some cuts. Uh, so he's done a lot of stuff that is kind of against type that that he's not as well known for, uh, right. including being a Shakespearean actor uh, on the on the stage, which he saw as his, the love of his life was the real stage, the theatrical stage. Um, so there's a lot to the guy between Ten Commandments and the NRA. One of them, I have to say, remains, at least in my mind, and maybe it's because I'm a nut about this stuff, one of the most iconic film Im- images ever, I think, is is him collapsing before the Statue of Liberty in Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing scene. Another iconic moment. And again, in a totally different genre. He was very lucky that he found and that people brought him projects that were very different from each other. He was able to reinvent himself about every 10 years and jump into the science fiction genre at a time when nobody was doing science fiction. Yeah. You know, they'd given up with the sort of, you know, the rocket ethics of the 50s. And, uh, and suddenly along comes this wonderful novel, Planet of the Apes, by a French writer, Pierre Boulle, with a script by Rod Serling, uh, who collaborated on the script. Uh, and it was just this fantastic chance to go off and do something completely different and play a very unsympathetic character. The astronaut Taylor is not really a very nice guy. He's no. very selfish and cynical. He's a hard ass. And, and, you know, Dad wasn't like that at all. He wasn't like Moses either. Um, and, and he wasn't you know, a cowboy or a president or a prophet. He was a dad and a husband, a loving father, 
uh, great grandfather, my kid. Right. Um, and, you know, I think, I think he, his life was enriched by these roles so much more than whatever fame and compensation that he received for them. Uh, a thousand fold more. It's also getting to do, and you was alluding to this before anyway, and I think it's the same with you. It's the same with me. There is something very special about doing the thing you love and the fact that somebody is willing to pay you for it. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I, I'm, I'm totally astounded every time I get a residual check or, or a check for writing a script or directing a film that, that people actually want to pay me to do this stuff. Yeah. Um, don't tell anybody, but I, I do it for nothing. Yeah. Don't, so. don't spread that around too much. Yeah. You want to keep that to yourself. No, <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that's an interesting point because, you know, the business side knows that, that creative people in Hollywood are just dying to do it. And they've been exploiting them for years for that. Um, but but creative people are willing to be exploited to a certain degree. I mean, thank goodness we have good unions now. I'm a member of two of them, the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild. And and thank God for people like my dad and Ronald Reagan who brought in residuals. Uh, you know, there were no residuals before Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild. Right. Uh, so thank goodness for that. Oh, absolutely. You know, before I move on, I, I do have to ask you one. I have one last question about Planet of the Apes I have to ask. Did your father ever want to kick, <laughs> okay. your father made a very big point at the time of saying, you know, anything else beyond the first movie was just adventures with the monkeys and all that sort of thing. But the way that sucker's gone on, <laughs> did he ever want to kick himself in the butt for saying, nope, I'm just doing the one and that's it? <laughs> you know, he did play a part in the second one. Was it beneath there? Yeah, well, that was the thing he did for Zanuck, right? Age. He did for Richard Zanuck. And, and he didn't, he said, I'll only do it for Zanuck as a favor. If if you agree to kill me off, so I don't get stuck doing all those sequels, right? And we went, oh yeah, right on, Dad. Good idea. Now I wish, uh, you know, I wish he'd done it because I'd be flying in a private jet, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably because he had a good agent. So. <laughs> so, and he was in. He was in the. Uh, he was. He played a, a, a an ape in the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes, I believe. He did. He he, play, uh, he played well, a. Yep. Yeah, he played a small part. Exactly. And I yeah. was shocked that he did it. It's <laughs> like, well, look at that. He had fun doing it. He, again, he said, you know, give me something new to do. Give me. He always wanted to do something different. I think his, his concern was that he didn't like getting typecast. And he didn't want to do series television until much later in life. He did a role in the Colby, right. uh, which was a great series and was very successful. Spinoff of Dynasty. Um, but he didn't want to get stuck as an actor doing one kind of part. You know, he did all those different things and then he wanted to go on and do the next thing. So I think he wanted to challenge himself. And he said, look, if, if I can't get a part in film, I can always go off and do a play, which yeah. he loved doing. You know, he saw himself as a theatrical New York actor. That's what, what, what he always viewed himself as. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, you mentioned earlier, you working on this documentary. I'd love to get a sense from you of what you feel this documentary will do or say about him? You know, I want, I don't have an agenda. I don't have a political agenda. I'm not making an apology for my father and his politics. Right. Some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. Um, they speak for themselves, as does his career. I think it's been amply documented in both do other documentaries and uh, in several wonderful books. Um, I want people to get to know my father as a man. 
as the, the father he was, as the husband he was, as the friend he was, as the artist he was, as the union activist, as a civil rights leader. Um, and I think these are things that this is sort of the unknown Charlton Heston, if you will. And, and I would like people to come along with me uh, and let me tell them the story of my father's life in, in perhaps in ways that they hadn't experienced before. Absolutely. And look, any time you could paint a new portrait of somebody, I think it's fascinating. Seriously, the, to paint a new. Good. Well, uh, I do, too, and I hope we get to make it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, to end this, because I know we're running out of time here, but I do want to ask you another thing about the Ten Commandments, uh, which is coming out, is, you know, obviously it's a very different style of filmmaking than people are used to today. Uh, you know, today we've yeah. our ep- our epics are you know the Avengers and things like that. Those are our epics. Uh, <laughs> that, that go. And I'm not yeah. putting that down because yeah. I love the Avengers, so I'm not putting it down. Uh, but I guess I wonder, for, what do you think for today's audience? What is the power of the Ten Commandments, the movie, <laughs> not the real Ten Commandments? Uh, well, you, first of all, you've got a great story. You've got one of the greatest stories ever told. Demille embraced technology to the fullest extent available at the time. Things like the parting of the Red Sea uh, were just brilliant use of technology. He loved that. He loved using models and you know doing anything he could to bring the illusion of something spectacular to the screen. Uh, and, and I think, you know, he, he would love being alive today and working, you know, alongside, you know, James Cameron or Steven Spielberg or Quentin Tarantino. Uh, I, I think he would be very much a vibrant modern filmmaker if he were alive today. Uh, and, and I think all of those guys that I just mentioned owe a big debt to C.B. DeMille for bringing those epics to the screen and making that such an important part of the Hollywood experience uh, and, and, as brought to the rest of the world. You know, it's funny. My kids had to practically, practically be paid to watch the original King Kong uh, because, you know, it's like, you know, cause oh, it's black and white. The effects suck, you know, all that stuff. What's funny is yeah. one of my sons though, watched the five disc, like making of that came with it, you know, five part making of that came with the disc. And yeah. he was so blown away. And the same, I think the same thing could be said for the 10 commandments of how they pulled off these incredible feats of wonder, these visual effects without a computer anywhere yeah. in sight. Yeah, no computer, no CGI, uh, very difficult to do effects over. Most things were done either in camera or or optical effects. There used to be optical houses that created effects on film using matte photography, multiple layers of film, animation, running film backwards. Uh, as one of the uh, special features, in fact, in the Digibook that Paramount's releasing is a documentary I collaborated on. Uh, called Making Miracles, and it's about the making of Ten Commandments, and it actually shows how they did the uh, Party of the Red Sea and a lot of other cool stuff in there, which which really uh, I personally found fascinating. Hope you enjoyed this trip back to the days of the true Hollywood epic. Please listen to this podcast on Spotify, subscribe to it, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.